I'm Tyler Crawley. And I'm Taylor Griffin. And this is Access of Reason. Well, I've always said that it's uh, better to be good than lucky or lucky than good. And uh, in this case, uh, it worked out perfectly because I am lucky that Taylor Griffin is good at booking guests because, Taylor, we have a great guest today to talk about these topics uh, that are happening right now all over the news. Iran, Saudi Arabia, all of that. So I'll let you start off by introducing our guest here, Taylor. Uh, Thanks for being here, as always, with me this morning. Thank you, Tyler. Okay, so our guest today is an old friend, Juan Zarate. Juan was the Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism under President George W. Bush. We worked together in the Treasury Department when Juan was in charge of tracking down and disrupting terrorist finances. And he is now the chairman and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network and an expert on all things Iran and counterterrorism. So Juan, welcome to Access of Reason. Thank you, Taylor. Tyler, thank you so much for hosting me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And Taylor, you're uh, counting you as one of my great friends and colleagues. So I appreciate <laughs> you inviting me on. You too, Juan. Thank you for doing this. So we had you scheduled to come on uh, last month, but we had a we had a um, scheduling snafu. You couldn't make my it. Fault, and it's absolutely fortunate because the biggest issue, perhaps in the Trump presidency, as far as foreign policy, is now confronting us this week. And that is the drone strike on Saudi Arabian oil infrastructure that looks very much like it is linked to Iran. U.S. officials are implying that. It's going to force a decision point about what to do about Iran. One, why is this such a crucial issue? Well, Taylor, what you have is really the flaring of this underlying conflict that's been underway that Iran has been engaged in. Some would argue tensions that have been born out of the U.S. pulling out of the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. Others would say that um, Iran has been pushing the envelope using proxy forces, using terrorist groups like Hezbollah, uh, supplying weapons to groups like the Houthis in Yemen, and engaging, in essence, in a proxy war against the Saudis, the Emiratis, and uh, other Sunni Arab states. Uh, And what you have in this attack on these uh, critical oil facilities for Saudi Arabia, these are really the kind of the heart uh, and soul of the the, uh, oil economy in Saudi Arabia is really a frontal assault on uh, the Saudi economy, Saudi stability, even their defense. And what this means is this proxy war that's been going on, you know, in these different parts of the world, you you say it's in Yemen, it's in Lebanon, it's in Syria, uh, a bit in places like Bahrain. It's happening in cyberspace. You've seen it in the maritime domain, in the Straits of Hormuz, where the Iranians have attacked some oil tankers and taken others hostage. You know, all of this comes to a head in this attack because this isn't just some proxy fight off somewhere distant. This is right in the heart of the Saudi economy, Saudi uh, policy uh, world. And Saudi Arabia now has to confront uh, what is, in essence, looking like an act of war on, uh, by Iran or by one of their proxies. This is important then for the U.S. We then have to consider not only who did it, uh, what does it mean? Um, and how do, how do the Saudis respond? But how do we respond either in support or separately to push back on Iran and to deter? And to your point, this puts the Iran policy and our strategy uh, right kind of in the headlines here. 
at a time, by the way, when President Trump dismissed his national security advisor, uh, John Bolton, who was focused uh, quite heavily on the Iran issue. What do we know that tells us that this is Iran? Well, a couple points of clarification, Taylor, and it gets really complicated quickly, but the Iranians have been supporting uh, the rebel group, the Houthis. Uh, it is a group that has taken over uh, the Yemeni capital, and it's against that rebel group that the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates, and with the support of the U.S., have aligned against. They support what is seen to be as the legitimate government of Yemen, now based in the southern part of Yemen. All of that, you know, you, you don't have to know the details of all this or the or the longstanding history. Just need to know that. Iran and Saudi Arabia are on opposite sides of this. Iran has been equipping the Houthi rebels, and the Houthi rebels have, over time, grown more aggressive in not just fighting back against Saudi troops or Saudi forces, but attacking into Saudi Arabia. Uh, Your listeners may remember uh, some attacks near Saudi airports. The Houthis have been been supplied with longer-range missiles. And they've been toying with these drones. Uh, and we've seen terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS use these drones. And obviously the Houthis are, are using them now. What we're learning from government statements is that, you know, there's satellite imagery and other information that is indicating that these were attacks that were launched out of Iran, out of Iran's territory, not out of Yemen from a proxy like the Houthis. The reason this is all important is This goes to whether or not you can attribute the attacks to the Iranian regime and who's at fault and ultimately what kind of response will be seen as legitimate by the international community under international law. This came from the Houthi rebels. The Iranians have plausible deniability and say, look, we didn't know, you know, we're not controlling these people. You know, you're fighting them anyway. That will be their argument. If it came from, you know, some Iraqi militias, which seemed to be an indication early on from some in the U.S. government, uh, again, the Iranians can hide their hand and not claim responsibility. If it came from Iranian territory, and if it turns out this was Iranian equipment, be it drones or missiles, then you have more direct Iranian responsibility, and it's much harder for the Iranians to claim that they didn't know anything about it and they didn't control it or direct it. If it turns out it came from Iran, uh, was directed by Iran in some way, was known to Iran. This is really an act of war against Saudi Arabia. And then the question is, what does Saudi Arabia do about it to both defend itself further and to retaliate and deter further Iranian uh, activities? We really are on the brink of, of potential broader and more open conflict in that regard. What is Iran's interest in the Houthi rebels in Yemen? Well, the Iranians... You know, the Iranian government is a revolutionary government. Keep in mind, this is the government that came into power, um, led by uh, the Ayatollahs in 1979. It's a a revolutionary regime that uh, wants to spread its ideology and its influence, and is trying to do so in competition with others in the Middle East. Uh, The Iranians have developed over time various strategies and tactics to use terrorist groups, proxy militias, uh, and other, other ways of influencing to, in essence, you know, either take control of territories or to influence in ways that allows them to operate freely. Uh, the Iranians have a, a strategy in mind to create you know, what many people call the Iranian Crescent, which is a, a land-based sort of 
contiguous area from Iran through the Middle East to the Mediterranean. That's why Syria and Lebanon become so important to them. It allows them to uh, support their proxies like Hezbollah, uh, the terrorist group in Lebanon. It allows them to support regimes like the Assad regime in Syria. They can supply them with missiles. They can supply them with money, weaponry, uh, even personnel. And the Houthis in particular in Yemen have some some ties uh, in terms of their Shia background. This is a, a you know this is one of the sects of Islam that is coincident with the Iranians. The great divide in Islam is the Sunnis and the Shias. Of course, we've seen this driving politics in the Middle East for decades, and with the Saudi Arabians being Sunni and Iran and the Houthi rebels being Shia aligned. Right. That's right, and and. You have, you have traditionally not only seen that divide play out in different places, but you've had the great powers of the Middle East, uh, like the Saudis and the Egyptians, aligning behind Sunni Arab interests, whereas the Iranians have aligned behind, uh, aligned behind Shia and Persian and other interests that are opposed to those countries and, and states. And so from a Saudi perspective, you can see that they begin to feel a bit of pressure. They feel encircled by what they see to be growing Iranian interests. They have their own internal Shia population that they sometimes are worried about, and they worry that Iran is trying to foment instability, ultimately to destabilize their their countries, take over resources, gain influence, and you know, sort of in the worst case scenario uh, for Saudi Arabia, taking over the key holy sites uh, of Mecca and Medina. But in, in general, what you have is an Iranian government that is adventurous and revolutionary in its outlook and very much willing to use all forms of asymmetric warfare to extend its influence and to support its allies. Well, let me ask you a question about, um, you know, obviously a lot of people in this country are very like war weary with uh, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And a lot of people uh, elected Donald Trump uh, for the purposes of uh, either getting us out of those wars or not getting into a new one. What is the strategic interest of the United States uh, when it comes to Saudi Arabia? Obviously, we have a very complicated relationship with them, uh, especially with the whole uh, Khashoggi thing that happened. Uh, earlier this year. And, you know, it's interesting to watch Washington in one minute talking about how we have to, um, you know, penalize Saudi Arabia to now we have to defend Saudi Arabia. So what is the U.S. interest um, when it comes to Saudi Arabia um, in that in that uh, portion of the world? It's a great question. It's one of the most complicated ones. And, And in full disclosure, Tyler, our firm, Finn, does some work with the Saudi Ministry of Finance to help them on their anti money laundering and counter terrorist financing efforts. So just full disclosure mm-hmm. on that. But what the U.S. interests with Saudi are you know, sort of manifold. One is there's just the history of a relationship there dating back to Roosevelt. There are these long, you know, diplomatic uh, ties, ties between our militaries. You know, these are things that that matter. They don't perhaps matter as much anymore, but they they are elements of the relationship. Two, they've always been a major supplier of oil, which has been important to not just the U.S. economy, economy, but the global economy. They've been the, the one country that's been, you know, not just cooperative with us, you know, I'm talking about in, in the 80s and 90s, not in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, but they've been willing to, to be the excess supply in the marketplace when needed. Um, and, and so, you know, they've been important in that regard. They're strategically located, right? Strait of Hormuz is where a lot of 
oil and gas shipped through uh, you know, right next to the Red Seas right there, you know, right in the heart of the Middle East. So they're strategically well-placed. The regime itself is important in Islam, right? They are the keeper of the two holy mosques in Mecca and Medina. Part of the legitimacy of that regime comes from their religious legitimacy. So there's real power in what they say and do from a, a religious standpoint for those who, who are practicing Muslims. And finally, they're aligned in ways that are aligned with our interests, right? They oppose the Iranian regime. They, they don't like the Muslim Brotherhood. The security services have attacked al-Qaeda pretty vigorously, uh, at least in the post-2002, 2003 period when Taylor and I were in at Treasury. And so there are a whole, whole host of kind of common enemies, common interests at play. It also explains why other allies like the UAE and Israel are neatly aligned with Saudi Arabia as well, even though it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense you know, for Israel. But in any event, it has become a kind of a fulcrum of our relationships in the Middle East, not without strain in terms of controversies. Khashoggi, I think, is a, is a very significant and serious question and an important question for the, the nature of the, of the new government and the new leadership. I think there's been questions before 9-11, even after 9-11, as to whether or not the Wahhabi ideology is a driver for violent Islamic extremism, something we talked a lot to uh, the Saudi government about behind closed doors, and a whole range of other questions around human rights, women's rights, that go to whether or not our interests long-term are actually aligned. But for now, I think everyone concludes, look, they're a, a longtime ally. We need them for lots of reasons. They're strategically important. And in a case like this, it's clear how the battle lines are drawn. And certainly we're not falling on the side of the Iranians. Going back to the, um, you know, the, the, the aspect of American society, which is very war weary about this. Um, the big concern we always hear when it comes to a conflict is that, you know, if we don't get involved now, it's only going to be a worse situation later. Um, so how do you sort of balance sort of uh, the, the sort of culture or society and uh, sort of the unpopular opinion and getting involved in another conflict, but also the importance of understanding how if something isn't done now, you know, waiting for Iran to get a nuclear weapon or something worse than that, uh, and then we have to get involved and it's going to be far worse for us. How do you sort of balance that from, uh, from a political perspective? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a legitimate set of concerns and question, not just politically, but you know, socially and and um, in terms of national security. I think, you know, the overhang and the ghosts of Iraq weigh heavily on us um, in in these kinds of situations. In part because, you know, the first step here is we've got to determine what happened. We have to attribute the attack, and the Iranians and others. You see this with the Russians too at times. They play with this idea of attribution because they know it's hard for us to prove in public, especially when we have intelligence sources that are telling us what has happened, hard for us to prove definitively and certainly hard to prove with the ghosts of Iraq WMD in the background. So that's one thing. And we've got to be very careful and cautious about how we think about, how we articulate, and how we prove attribution of the attack. Second is, before we go into any conflict, we have to know what we're trying to do, and we've got to realize what the consequences are of beginning any form of kinetic or other, other form of warfare. Again, part of this is the Iraq hangover, which is, you know, were we ready for 
you know, the post-invasion realities of Iraq? And, and the answer was no. And I think that has to be part of the calculus. You've got to worry about a day two, not just a day one terms of any conflict. And third, I think we've got to be very careful that we don't have a knee-jerk reaction toward the use of kinetics and, and military strikes as a simple default or, or fallback. There are other ways of pressuring and making Iran pay for their attacks or think about attacking again. I think w- what the listeners need to, need to think about in, in terms of, a, uh, of this question is we've got to be able to not just hold uh, those responsible to account in support of Saudi Arabia or even for our own purposes. But we've got to deter additional attacks, not just of this type, but others, uh, whether it's on maritime assets, whether it's cyber attacks on our financial uh, institutions, wh- which the Iranians have done before, uh, whether it's you know uh, attacking oil pipelines that are vital for um, the international economy. You know, the Iranians aren't going to stop until something pushes back. The question is, how do you push back appropriately? And can you do that in a way that the US doesn't have to do it, or in a way that may involve other tools like sanctions, or some pushback in the maritime domain, or in the cyberspace, or or using other, other tools of isolation? I think we've got to be creative about this, because I agree with those saying, look, we're war weary, we don't want to jump into another major conflict, and in any conflict, the other side has a vote. And we've got to recognize that the Iranians uh, will bite back. We can see what they can do. And we've got to be prepared for any consequence of kinetic strikes by the U.S. or by Saudi Arabia. One, you mentioned sanctions. And we've, had, we've upped sanctions since pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal in an effort to bring them back to the table. But Iran has responded by becoming increasingly aggressive. Are sanctions working? Is there a point where the pain threshold from sanctions rises high enough that Iran feels compelled to de-escalate, or are we at the point now where continued sanctions will just cause continued escalation? Taylor, you've asked a billion-dollar question, I think. It's a really interesting moment because I think the sanctions are working, dramatically so. I think it's incredibly painful for the Iranians. And, And in some ways, it's ruptured this idea that emerged during the the nuclear deal negotiations and and the debate, certainly here in Washington, that, you know, we couldn't impose further pressure on Iran or that we couldn't do it unilaterally or that the pressure and isolation campaign that we started back in 06 at Treasury, that that it was falling apart, right? All All these narratives that were a part of that debate and frankly, the selling of that deal, I think are ruptured by the fact that you know, the sanctions over the last two years have been devastating. And we've done it despite the fact that we've had uh, European opposition and others not wanting to put pressure on Iran. The challenge, of course, is Iran's feeling the heat, the pressure, the economy's suffering. Oil sales are have been cut dramatically. They've been hurt to the tune of billions of dollars. And we know that. And, and we know that they're retaliating because of it. I mentioned this before we started recording that the Iranian government has put a Washington-based think tank on their own sanctions list, and some would argue a hit list. It's a think tank that I'm associated with, with called the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. It's been put on that list, and it's been targeted because that's a think tank that puts out policy papers and briefings and strategy ideas for how to use economic and financial pressure against America's enemies, including Iran. 
And Iran is feeling so much pressure from this campaign. Uh, they're lashing out against Washington think tanks uh, that are producing uh, memos and policy uh, directives and, and recommendations. But they are lashing out. And so the question is, uh, do we continue to put pressure on the regime? Do we strain their ability to make strategic budgeting decisions? And do we hope that that turns into enough leverage such that the Iranians will cry uncle and come back to the negotiating table as they did the JCPOA? Or are we in a, a vicious cycle of more pressure leading to more Iranian provocation and reaction leading to more escalation? I think that's a really critical question. I'm, I'm a firm believer that you don't give up on the pressure and leverage you have. I think the reactions we're seeing are reactions from an Iran that's suffering deeply from the pressure and isolation. And you do see, and this has been reported in the press, that there are debates within Iranian leadership about how to handle this. And one of the outs is to actually come back to the negotiating table. And so part of this all may be part of an Iranian plan to try to get back to the negotiating table. Certainly, we've heard them explicitly say they want back into the old JCPOA, the old nuke deal. Uh, the Trump administration is obviously not going to go for that. But all of this hopefully leads to negotiations as opposed to war. But we're at this critical juncture where it's not clear which path this leads toward. Wanzarati, thank you for joining us. Wanzarati is chairman and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network and former deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism. For Tyler Crowley, I'm Taylor Griffin. Thanks for listening. 